Welcome to this episode of the BioInsights podcast. I'm Abby Finchbeck, an editor at BioInsights, and today I'll be joined by two industry experts from PPD to discuss challenges with cell therapy clinical trials and how to effectively deliver complex studies in advanced therapeutics. We'll discuss the approaches that can be taken today so that future cell therapy clinical trials can avoid enrollment challenges and delays in study timelines and ultimately result in the best chance for clinical trial success. Now I'd like to introduce our presenters today. Our first speaker is Jay Balkasun, a surgical oncologist and the medical and scientific lead for immuno-oncology, cell and gene therapy at PPD. His role includes providing drug development strategy, medical, scientific and product development guidance, to both external clients and internal PPD clinical operations and business development teams. Joining Jay and I today is Vito Ramita, Senior Director, Global Project Management in the Hematology Oncology Therapeutic Unit at PPD. Vito is a clinical research professional with 26 years of experience in the drug development industry, primarily in the CRO environment, and he has worked with small, mid-sized biotech and large farmer. I'd like to thank you both for joining me today and without any further ado I'll move on to my first question here which is for Jay. What do you see as the three most important challenges with the current development of cell therapies in oncology? First um, it's identifying training and qualifying non-traditional research experience sites to be able to run clinical trials in cell therapies and also to treat patients with the current standard of care cell therapies um, in the community. And when you think about this, you know, this is gonna involve a collaboration between cell therapy experienced uh, CROs, sponsors, academic sites, payers, and also regulators that are all committed to make this happen. At, you know, at PPD, we have a site coach training program uh, that is dedicated to supporting the training of new research experienced community sites uh, that are motivated. And that's, and that's actually, the, I want to emphasize that, that are motivated, committed, and have the resources to become a cell and gene therapy experience site. Now, will there be a mechanism for uh, research experienced community sites to become fact accredited? Um, we assume it will be similar to large academic institutions. You know, we need more sites with experience to run cell therapy studies. Um, it's also gonna take, uh, we're gonna need more altruistic cell therapy academic sites to not only train and mentor, but also to encourage some of the next generation of cell therapy experienced oncologists to consider a career in communities that do not have cell therapy expertise. I think that's very important. We also need to develop more mentorship and training programs at academic institutions where not only community oncologists, but sites, site staff, 
including research nurses and study coordinators, can go to attend on-site training sessions um, to, bring to bring back to their community hospitals. And just to add that we need, need buy-in from research experience community hospitals, including the hospital administration, to bring these complex treatments uh, into their hospital systems. Community sites will need to have assurance from insurance carriers uh, that they will be reimbursed for standard of care comparator arm treatments, for example, as well as for cell therapy treatments given as standard of care. Another uh, aspect is, so for, for autologous cell therapies, uh, using viral vectors for gene modification, the vein-to-vein -vein time that includes manufacturing can be quite long, and patients may require bridging therapies while waiting for their cells, and some patients may actually develop disease progression during this time and never receive their manufacturing cells. Allogeneic or off-the-shelf cell therapies can alleviate some of these challenges uh, with no need for patients to undergo apheresis and cells readily available to infuse into multiple patients without manufacturing delays. Now, some of the off-the-shelf off cell therapies can be given at multiple infusions per cycle, uh, which may improve um, anti-tumor activity, uh, and we may see more durable responses. And another consideration regarding manufacturing of cell therapies is how to increase their potency with a longer duration of anti-tumor activity without increased toxicities. And then third, uh, the third challenge is really preventing and managing uh, you know, the toxicities uh, that have been associated with cell therapies. So for autologous cell therapies, the most common and the most important toxicities that we're all familiar with is cytokine release syndrome and the neurotoxicities or ICAN, uh, seen with the CAR T cell treatments. And although the majority are grade one and two, um, it's the potential for higher grade toxicities that may occur more than 14 days after infusion that, is, that has fueled our conservative practices to monitor patients closely and often in the hospital for seven days, followed by requirements for the patient to remain in the local vicinity of the study site for about a month after infusion of CAR T, of CAR -T cells. So we need to design better cell therapies that have fewer toxicities and identify biomarkers that can predict early onset and which patients are more likely to, to develop severe life-threatening toxicities. We can then develop risk mitigation strategies and prophylactic measures uh, that may prevent or decrease the severity of these toxicities. And it's the potential uh, for severe and sometimes life-threatening toxicities uh, that has prevented these advanced cell therapies from being used um, by community oncologists. So there's so many more, but these are, these are, I see the three biggest challenges right now when we're developing uh, cell therapies, uh, especially in, in oncology. Great, thank you, Jay. And Vito, did you have anything to add there? Sure, I'd just like to comment that Jay um, outlined all of the, the key considerations and challenges, uh, which are quite significant um, and not all that easy to overcome. Um, I think one of the uh, issues that we also have to address is expansion. Um, and Jay made a reference to some of the logistical complications um, with respect to running cell, cell and gene therapy trials. Um, you know, he made reference to, to safety monitoring. And certainly you would have to really develop a very robust um, strategy 
when you start to expand um, to other countries and other sites, and especially as these therapies start to become uh, and evolve so that they become registrational trials in that we, we are entering countries where perhaps there are differences in standard of care. So I think that's really, really important to, to ensure that there is uh, a harmonized approach in terms of uh, understanding um, the, the different modalities uh, of the therapy in question uh, and you know, how that impacts uh, training at the site level and, uh, ec and uh, execution of the clinical trial. Great, thank you both for your input there. Now I've got a question for you, Vito. What can industry leaders, stakeholders, and sponsors do to improve on patient access to cell and gene therapy clinical trials? That's a great question. Um, and I think it's a perfect segue from Jay's conversation about the three most important challenges uh, impeding clinical trials, specifically in the context of adoptive cell therapies, which are highly complex, both logistically and in design. And among these challenges is the underpinning issue of enrollment, which is common across all clinical trials. The current process and mechanism in which most of, most of us conduct clinical trials can't really evolve without a carefully thought out strategy to enable patients to access treatment options available to them uh, and uh, through participation. I'd like to basically reset for a moment um, and just explain that without understanding the patient's experience and their specific challenges across the age, color, gender, race, and socioeconomic spectrum, we literally compromise our ability to bring these transformative therapies to market that are intended to serve the people who desperately need these potentially curative treatments the most. We are living in an, ex in a, in an extraordinary era, very exciting, where we now have capabilities to introduce precision medicine and this capability is opening up vast possibilities. And we, meaning collectively, all of the industry stakeholders have an obligation to make every effort to exploit those possibilities so that we ensure that no patient remains untreated and is left behind. As an industry stakeholder, we have to make that effort that absolutely concentrated effort to collect data representative of patients across all cultural and diverse societal spectrum. What I'm trying to get across is that inclusion or lack of inclusion and representation of clinical trial data from patient populations and subpopulations literally limit the scientific and medical validity of treatment derived outcomes and patient reported outcomes that is so essential for a successful clinical trial from the perspective of the patient, their caregivers, our regulators, and of course our payers. I'd like to just spend perhaps a minute or two just to uh, provide you with some interesting statistics. People of color make up approximately 40% of the population in the, in the US, yet only 50% and as low as 2% participate in clinical trials. Another interesting statistic is that more than half, approximately 52% of the population in North America, and we have similar statistics in other parts of the world as well, possess middle to lower level for performance 
in relation to literacy and comprehension. This is no doubt a significant obstacle in relation to patient access to clinical trials, their access to sites, and of course, the whole patient onboarding process. The last point that I want to get across is the large percentage of racial and ethnic minority groups remain underrepresented in clinical trials, but disproportionately present with higher incidence of chronic disease. Um, and I think we just, again, have to focus on the problem statement, which is maintaining the status quo and complacency around how most clinical trials are con conducted does not afford society nor our industry the urgency to address many of these unmet medical needs. Without a deliberate and holistic mechanism and an infrastructure to educate and direct patients to these clinical trials, we limit enrollment and we limit our ability to provide for these patients. If I had to capitalize on three areas of focus, these areas of focus have now become areas of concern given the massive influx of research and development and information overload with respect to clinical trials in general, but especially with respect to cell and gene therapy trials. Patient awareness of their own conditions and perception of the industry is definitely one consideration and area of focus. Primary care physicians' awareness of ongoing clinical trials and their own availability to educate and guide patients to their best treatment options is another. And then we have to consider the patient's ability to navigate through publicly available resources and or access resources to reach these treatment centers. The solution is not by any means a quick fix. Many of the ethnic, racial, and or other minority groups lack the skills, the resources, and the time. And given their historical context, they view industry with substantial anxiety and mistrust. And this because of, again, um, uh, some historical and contextual situations that have occurred. So how do we engage and develop with these communities and patients to develop that trust? How do we remove some of the logistic and financial barriers? And with respect to clinical literacy, how do we educate? I think there are a number of approaches that we should be considering. One is around cultural competency and training for clinical research professionals right across all segments of the industry. This training should be focused on identifying what those barriers are, whether it be bias or discrimination, and the training directed to all site-facing and patient-facing research professionals. The next um, uh, um, area of consideration is identification of sites and communities where race and ethnic minority groups are concentrated. And we certainly have a number of technologies using epidemiology data, prevalence data, and certainly data mining capabilities to identify where these disparities are and in terms of where these concentrations of minority groups uh, reside uh, with respect to geographic distribution. This next area of, of focus or consideration is extremely important, and that is developing the sustained level of trust and engagement throughout the communities. Continuous sustained outreach to communities must be focused on education 
again, on developing that level of trust. And this is done by and through a number of venues, whether that be through patient advocacy groups, community outreach, using social media, um, involving trusted key opinion leaders, increasing the vis visibility to principal investigators and healthcare professionals that are representative of these racial and ethnic minority groups and that advocate for those communities, developing a very strong referral network. And lastly, and I would really like to get this point across is that the development of patient advocacy boards where we involve academic centers, pharma, CRO, the communities, community health networks, the patient themselves, and the government is absolutely key in solidifying this, lo this long-term strategy. Trial design. We know, we absolutely know and, and, and have reliable data to show that if we incorporate the patient's voice in trial design, this will optimize the results on the back end in terms of enrollment, in terms of engagement. In 2017, the FDA Reauthorization Act uh, has come, what came out and encourages the incorporation of patient experience data uh, included in all new drug applications. The development of the informed consent form and patient facing materials, as well as other data capture materials should be manifested in such a way that they are culturally competent, culturally relevant. We have mechanisms in place where we could track our success rate in including these diverse um, patient populations in real time. And the last point is around patient retention. And in the context of cell and gene therapy trials, um, where we are administering a genetically modified product or a genetically modified cellular entity, the follow-up is 15 years. And so how do we manage patient retention? And this will then uh, segue into my next point, which is establishment of patient-centric and supportive services. We can do this by, again, leveraging our technological capabilities, televisits, telemedicine, we have infrastructure now to ensure that we could effectively and efficiently reimburse for travel, time from work, reimburse for childcare. We have mechanisms and infrastructure in place where um, we can manage the logistics, meaning that we could book air, ground travel, and accommodations. Many of these trials uh, are situated um, uh, quite a distance from where the patients reside. Many of these trials require in-campus or in-hospitalization stays, and so that's an important consideration. Providing educational and support materials to manage the patient in their journey, scheduling and supporting their, their schedule compliance by interacting with them pre and post visits, and then continuing that dialogue with respect to their involvement, involvement and their experience. I'd like to come to the last point for this question that I'd like to get across, and that is truly overcoming the status quo. We have available to us a plethora of tools, digital technologies, well-defined strategies, yet these aren't widely adopted as part of the long-term strategy to elevate underrepresented communities so that these communities are prepared to make informed choices. The considerations and the challenges presented here are not necessarily novel, but certainly 
the focus of these issues have been intensified. We have to learn to build the plane while we fly the plane. Overcoming the status quo and the inertia around the major investment in these tools should be part of a broader strategic strategy that is targeted to address patient diversity and inclusion and having an overall and positive impact on enrollment. Great, that was a really thorough answer there and some really important points. Thank you so much for that. So my next question is, how can we make complex cell and gene therapy clinical trials more understandable to patients and their primary caregivers? In addressing the previous question, I've referred to obstacles associated with clinical literacy, potential issues around alienation, trust, patient-physician, community, and industry relationships. To address the historically embedded biases requires collaboration across academia, community centers, and community healthcare networks, um, healthcare professionals, and again, pharma, CROs, and the government, and of course, the patient. What we have not discussed is the actual onboarding of the patient. How do you engage with the patient who may have limited reading and writing and or language skills and educate them on the complexity of a cell therapy trial, the risks associated with conditioning and cell infusion in the context of an adoptive cell therapy or genetically uh, or, or a trial that um, uses a genetically modified cellular entity, the short and potentially long-term risks and benefits that are associated with that therapy, the genetic and reproductive implications, and then weigh these con considerations against their current conditions, life expectancy, and available treatment options. I referenced the consent form in my previous response to you, but simplification of that consent form is absolutely key. Trying to simplify the message around and by using, again, technological uh, advances and very simply some video cartoon illustration and demonstrations can easily tackle many of these issues and does demystify the, the, the challenges and to some extent, the science behind cell and gene therapies. We can certainly use the e-consent process and uh, televisits to engage directly with patients and their caregivers directly in the comfort of their homes. And again, providing patient-facing and educational material that are culturally competent and culturally relevant. Another great answer there, thank you. Now, my final question today is what can be done to help design safer cell therapy trials? Um, in terms of safety, um, most certainly, um, you know, there are considerations that have to be taken into account um, during the proof of concept um, and really establishing um, and monitoring uh, safety outcomes from uh, first in human trials, and then to continually watch uh, with go, no-go decisions, um, having a development of adaptive trials uh, that will, again, uh, incorporate go and no-go decisions uh, as we start to enroll patients and as the safety data begins to develop. Uh, incorporation and uh, inclusion of data safety, data safety monitoring boards, as well as clinical 
oversight um, is 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 key to ensuring uh, ensuring that there's a, a, a manageable uh, approach to to safety management and surveillance, um, using and relying on digital technologies um, uh, and trending analysis uh, is another uh, way to uh, incorporate within the context of a clinical trial a mechanism where now we're looking at data, but not only uh, uh, on a patient or individual patient basis, but looking at aggregate data to make uh, strategic choices um, and or provide strategic decisions and direction. Thank you, Vito and Jay, for sharing your insights with us today. This episode was brought to you in partnership with PPD. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe to the BioInsights podcast.